Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them. And most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. My guest on this episode is Bex Shaw. Bex is an academic haematology registrar in Liverpool, UK. She's finishing up her PhD, an element of which has been focused on the rare yet fascinating blood disorder TTP, or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. I get to ask her lots of searching questions, particularly about the psychosocial impact of this diagnosis, so stay tuned. Hi, welcome back to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by Bex Shaw, who is an amazing haematology registrar working in Liverpool and is just uh, coming towards the end of a PhD with Prof Cheng Hok To working on, well, we'll talk about what she's working on. Hi, Bex. Hello. It's amazing. It's amazing to finally get you on this podcast after having me cancel you on you, you cancel on me. Um, It was like a series of of being stood up, but that's fine. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah, busy schedules. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> um, so you, tell me what your PhDs are. Oof, well, <laughs> well, so my PhD really is focused on TTP. Um, as probably a lot of people's research did in the midst of the pandemic, I did go on a, a detour with what I was researching um, after March 2020. But um yeah, I guess now that I'm coming towards the end, my thesis is focused on um, basically novel mechanisms for what triggers an acute episode of TTP and then also a study that we've set up looking at the longer term complications associated with TTP. So just for someone who's non-initiated into the realms of hematology, what's TTP? Mm, yeah, sure. Um, so TTP stands for thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Um, which is a mouthful and that's why we shorten it to TTP because it's much easier to say. Um, Basically, it's a very rare blood clotting disorder. It's a medical emergency because basically without diagnosis and treatment, it's about 90% mortality rate. Um, With TTP, what happens is that patients have a lack of a particular enzyme called ADAMS13 and what this enzyme does is it helps to break down big long strings um, that can form in the blood basically. Uh, in the normal physiology of the blood, um, this, this enzyme is present, it chops down big strings of something called von Willebrand factor, which is part of the clotting system. Um, and that means that the blood flows normally when I always think have, of, I always think of that as yeah. like pond pond weed coming up from the pond you know, weed. The, That's a very good description. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I always think of Adam's thirteen as a tiny pair of scissors. So 
so that's just like going through chopping the pond weed and then everything stays happy um when you have a complete lack of this adams 13 enzyme and you don't have the tiny scissors uh then you get the big long strings of pond weed or bombulabrum factor that platelets attach and then small clots form and it all gets blocked up in the blood and you essentially have lots of tiny blood clots uh, throughout which can appear throughout the body um, and is you know uh, predominantly fatal without treatment. So what do patients present with? So generally um, they present with so it mainly affects particular organs in the body so predominantly the brain, the heart and the kidneys. Um, the things that you might see patients present with in terms of neurological symptoms can be really, really varied. So it can be anything as sort of simple as a headache um, or some mild sort of agitation and then right the way through to the other end of the spectrum where you get patients presenting with seizures or in a coma um, so that there's a there's a huge variety in terms of the neurological presentation. So the predominantly um, neurological presentations are the other organs and things affected as well. Yeah, so the other organs are um, are affected, uh, but it's not necessarily things that you would see symptoms of. So you you can have an acute kidney injury. It doesn't it doesn't tend to be severe enough to require um, renal replacement therapy, but you would see an acute kidney injury um, often on the blood test. Um, and a rise in the cardiac troponin but again it's less common to see the typical features of say an acute heart attack like chest pain because actually as opposed to a heart attack where you've got a big, big clot forming this is micro clots um, throughout the body. Uh, in terms of obviously coming from like a hematology perspective uh, they're going to present with anemia and a severe thrombocytopenia on the full Why? blood count. Sorry. Why? Oh, so basically it's the thrombocytopenia is basically the platelets. They are still there, but they're all in the wrong place. So because they're being consumed uh, on the strings of formula brand and stuck within the micro clots, then when you're taking a blood sample from the patient, um, you're getting single single figure platelets generally. Um, so they're just all in the wrong place. And why do you get the anemia? And the anemia, um, so in TTP, it's a type of uh, what we call thrombotic microangiopathy. So um, there's all there's lots of big long words. So you get a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. Um, so if we just break that down, um, obviously the anemia part we know about that's a low hemoglobin. Um, the it's a type of hemolytic anemia, so you have a breakdown of red cells. And this microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, so if we take the whole word together, what's happening is that the red cells are getting uh, mechanically fragmented, trying to pass through the blocked blood vessels. So you have the tiny microclots that are forming, and then as the red cells are trying to uh, pass and flow through there, they're getting broken down because they, the clots are getting in the way. Fine. So you need to diagnose this ASAP and then get patients treated. I, I guess given it's such a rare disease, it requires someone to think about it when they see someone who's either confused or with a fever, who has that blood picture of thrombocytopenia and, and uh, anemia. Um, but we, we, we all know that 
patients get missed for many hours because it's so rare. Yeah. I mean, Heemstar have done an audit on this pretty recently where we've looked at treatment delays and that we found that the, the major the major reason for treatment delays is diagnostic uncertainty. Mm. How, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you diagnose it um, definitively? So um, one thing that I would point out is that although we've, we've talked about all these signs and symptoms and the ways it might present is that actually because of how severe how, how unwell these patients can be and because of the high risk of mortality really we should be thinking about TCP in any patient that's got um, uh, this microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and a thrombocytopenia without any obvious cause so if you haven't got another obvious reason for that blood picture then we really should be thinking of TTP. Um, so the ways to pick soon, up, sorry, sorry, the ways to pick up that that hemolysis would be things like uh, high LDH, high bilirubin, and then fragments on a blood film. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so gen- generally, the the lab should be picking up fragments on a blood film. There should be. There's usually a process where a film is automatically made, um, especially in the context of a very low platelet count, um, and so you would have someone in the lab that's looking at that film and then generally it gets flagged to a hematologist to say, um, you know, single figure platelets and there's fragments on the film. And then again, that's another, I suppose, safety net and another trigger for people to be thinking about TTP. And so what would you do to treat it? So um, the basically the first line emergency treatment for TTP is something called plasma exchange. and what happens is is that generally the patients will need a central line access um, but they're attached up to a big machine that's um, kind of I guess the closest thing would be like a dialysis machine a hemodialysis machine if um, people have seen one of those Um, simply speaking what happens is that the patient's blood is taken out um, of one side and then it's filtered so um, it's spun down the patient's plasma is removed because that's the um the plasma that's lacking the enzyme so that's discarded and then the rest of the blood cells plus fresh donor plasma get reinfused back into the patient so the patient gets their own blood cells back but new new plasma that has that enzyme that they're missing in it and whilst they're having that treatment clear we're sending off the definitive test which is this adams 13 level which yeah. i I'm sure you were coming to, but I really interrupted you. Um, <laughs> but I guess one of the one of the problems of that is it's quite a specialist test. Not every hospital has access to that. Um, yeah. So one of the the outcomes from the the, the Heemstar audit was you know trying trying to get more access to the, the Adams thirteen level out of hours because mm. you know you should probably be testing more patients if you're not sure. Oh uh, uh, yeah. That the pickup uh, rate should be lower really from, from absolutely the yeah. And I I think to be honest, if if there's ever if there's ever a question about it, um, the first thing is that you should be speaking to a hematologist, um, yeah. and then that hematologist is generally speaking to a specialist centre. Um, but but secondly, as as you were referring to, if the question's been raised, the Adams thirteen should be sent off for testing, uh, even if that's just to rule it out, um, and. We, you're right in that it's not offered in every single hospital. I think one thing that 
is helping that I think will change in the coming years is that we now have a rapid ADAMP 13 testing um, kit available called the AccuStar. Um, the original ADAMP 13 testing um, takes around four hours and it's something called an ELISA test and it, it does need someone to have specialist training to perform it. Whereas the AccuStar is something that can be done out of hours by someone who hasn't had specialist training. Um, I think that's going to open up, you know, how quickly we can get a sample tested. Um, in our centre in Liverpool, if it's out of hours and the particular people with the skills to do the longer test aren't available, we run the quick test and then we follow it up um, with the longer, more specialist tests as a as a backup and just to reassure us that we're getting the right um, values really for the Adam 13. Okay. Um, I realize we've missed something key, which was that you can either have congenital CTP where there's a genetic yeah. defect, which means you have less Adam's 13, or you can have an immune TTP, which is where you develop this antibody. We'll just That's sort of right. mostly focus on immune TTP because it's the most common, sort of the more mm -hmm. common form, isn't it? Um, yeah. And in those patients, as well as the plasma exchange, you're going to want to give them steroids to immunosuppress them, get rid of the get rid of this antibody, um, and 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 then go from there. Other drugs like rituximab are used quite a lot, and then there's this new drug called capricizumab, which mm -hmm. is an anti von Willebrand monoclonal antibody. Um, or actually, it's a nanobody, isn't it? It's, it's a nanobody, yeah. yeah. So it's like a from, fragment of an immunoglobulin. Yeah. Is it yeah. camels or llamas or something? something um, yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think llamas, isn't it? It, yeah. yeah one of those types of animals <laughs> <laughs> they're amazing well i'll do another podcast on nanobodies because it's one of the things that we're doing doing in our lab it sounds um, pretty futuristic i think though yeah yeah no they're really neat because they're basically a lot smaller than antibodies so they yeah. can get in and yeah. inhibit things that a normal antibody wouldn't be able to do and can be reduced a lot cheaper um anyway it's a complete digression um <laughs> Capsizumab is this interesting drug. Have you got any opinion on Capsizumab? Because the, the trial, you know, the trial is interesting. It didn't show survival benefit. It showed it improved platelet function uh, mm. or improved platelet count. It, and it's extremely expensive. So I've seen yeah. you know, cost efficacy analysis on it that say it's not not worth it. But you know, these are these. It, it is a drug that, that does change the course of the disease. Definitely, it's definitely biologically active. Have you yeah. got any thoughts on whether we should be using this drug or not? Yeah, I mean, I guess. Um... For disclosure, I'm coming from the point of view of having um, like published the real world evidence of Kaplasizumab um, for the UK. So, I mean, that was really useful because we were getting data from um, all the different trusts that were using Kaplasizumab around the UK after, um, like outside of clinical trials, basically. Um, I think it's really made a difference. Um, so the main one of the main kind of outcomes from the clinical trials was that um, it reduced the time to platelet count normalization. So the patient's platelet count yeah, was was getting back to normal much more quickly. And then it reduced the number of days on plasma exchange therapy, which is it's quite a burden for the patients that uh, and also the length of hospital stay. So they're really, you know, from the clinical trials, the kind of for me the big thing as well was like the reduced burden of care on the patient um from our experience of sorry like our experience with using capricizumab like i do feel like i can think of a number of cases that 
were quite refractory that it, I do feel like it's really made a difference because the treatment options are still relatively limited for this group of patients. Um, they all get the plasma exchange, as you mentioned, like the immunosuppression with the idea of, of getting rid of um, this antibody. Um, so the steroids, uh, the rituximab, which is great. It's been shown to reduce relapse rate, but it doesn't, it doesn't improve survival in acute TTP. And the problem with it is it can take up to 12 weeks to have effect as well. And if you've got someone in front of you that's, you know, severely unwell and, and deteriorating like neurologically, it's just, it's kind of not enough to do the job quickly enough, basically. Um, I mean, I'm sure we've both seen people be incredibly unwell and, and ultimately die from TCP. You know, it's something mm. that takes away young lives. I remember a guy, a guy in Birmingham who died. I think we ended up giving him vincristine as a as a sort of last throw of immunosuppression. Mm. So it's, you know, it's, this is pretty pretty desperate stuff. And for whatever reason, that 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 disease was just totally refractory. And I wonder, you know, this was pre capitalism That drug probably yeah. would have saved this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think these are the, you know, I mean, I am biased. I've done my whole thesis on <laughs> TTP, but it's it's such a it's such an important condition. Like mm. it's it's very rare, but like you said, that you can get young people that don't survive an acute episode of this. And the thing that really gets me is that these are people that are fit and well and just going about their daily lives, and then suddenly, yeah. you know something triggers an acute episode of TTP and it's completely life-changing for them uh and we had like very early on in my training I think I was certainly within the first six months of ST3 um we lost a like very young patient to TTP and I you know it's part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now it these these patients you don't forget about and there are certain I guess experiences or patients that you come across that ultimately shape your career really you touched on something interesting do we know what triggers TTP so this is a very interesting question <laughs> um we know some information about what might trigger an acute episode of TTP so there is literature um describing uh, like pregnancy is a trigger, uh, particularly with the congenital TTP patients. Um, particular medications can can trigger like a drug drug induced um, type of TTP. Explain to me how congenital TTP is triggered, because I thought you'd be born with it, and that was it. So you so basically with congenital TTP, you have a defect in the Adams thirteen gene. So yeah, you are you are born with it. Um, but the interesting thing with congenital TTP is that often patients present as adults. So they've obviously had this genetic defect their entire lives. Um, yet they, it seems to be, I guess, I might describe it as like a multi-hit process where maybe you get, you know, you get to a point where you have a number of things that build up and eventually you cross that threshold for mm-hmm. developing like an acute clinical presentation yeah. of TTP. So and, and we, I, guess we do... pregnancy, I guess in pregnancy, von Willebrand level goes up and is that why that's... that gets unmasked? So I, 
I think that that is part and parcel of it. Um, there's been, yeah, so that, so these, I guess these things are described like pregnancy infection is, is another one and like surgery as, as things that, that might trigger an episode of TTP. And then there's been like different publications looking at um, like cytokines. So there's, there's particular cytokines that we know are associated with inflammation and infection, like IL-6, IL-8, um, and like different groups have looked at this with TTP, but there's not really much definitive, like from that point of view, it's a bit, some studies say some cytokines, some say others, it's a little bit of a mishmash. Um, my feeling is that there's definitely more for us to learn about about what exactly is triggering an yeah. acute episode there's 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 certainly gray areas i think um where we've still got a lot to learn yeah sure okay um we've we've talked a lot about the acute phase of this disease mm. but i know one of your well your interest and passion and one of the projects you're running through Humestar is to do with the longer term complications because you know these patients get very very sick they have little clots in their brain and those cause presumably long lasting damage to some extent don't they but I guess those changes yeah. can be quite subtle tell me yeah. tell me tell me how the PhDs looked into that and, and what you're doing and what in this study that you're running called connect yeah so so essentially this kind of other part of my PhD um we've done through so we've got local TTP patient support groups and spend a lot of time with the patients in clinic and the long-term problems with TTP were actually first highlighted from the patient support group in Oklahoma so the Oklahoma group in the USA they were one of the first people to actually even have a support group for their patients and prior to say even 15-20 years ago we used to think that TTP was just you had an acute episode you got better there was a risk of relapse back into an acute um, phase but there was kind of this assumption that once you were in remission and your platelet count was normal that everything was fine and you could just go back to whatever you were doing before and you know just maybe check your bloods every so often so there was this kind of impression that yeah you would just go back completely to normal but through the Oklahoma group, the patients just kept saying, I don't feel quite how I was before. And it would be quite subtle things like maybe them feeling like their memory wasn't quite as good as it was before, concentration, maybe headaches was like quite a common one that came up as well. Um, and kind of themes started appearing. Um, and then slowly over the last decade or so um there's been kind of small studies showing that yeah ttp patients are actually experiencing longer term problems um the connect study that we've set up in the uk um will be like the first study to collect prospective like data over a period of two years um basically looking at what problems TTP patients are experiencing. And one of the kind of unique things about Connect 
compared to some of the other studies is that we've tried to incorporate as many patients as possible. So we've not we've not excluded any. So any patient with either a new diagnosis of TTP or one that was diagnosed um, historically can be included. So we're really trying to mm-hmm. broaden the inclusion for the study. Um, and I think we're, I mean, I've done a, well, I'm doing like an interim analysis now, um, just looking at our Liverpool data that we had over a period of a year. And there are like themes emerging with the TTP patients. And it's, it's not things that are surprising to us, but however, there's, there's just not a great wealth of evidence to back it up. And the thing, I guess the thing with like clinical practice and moving forward is that if you can have some concrete evidence to back up the services that you need or the care that you want to provide to the patient, it just, it pushes things forward. Um, because otherwise it's very easy for us to say, well, we know the patients are struggling, <laughs> but you really need, you need the evidence and the proof to, to back it up. And so we're kind of, we kind of hope that this is really going to push forward the supportive services for TTP patients in the long term as well. You said you'd yeah, said themes. themes. What sort of themes? So the so broadly um, within the study, uh, I mean, I'd have liked to look at a million things, but, but as you know, you have to you have to try and um, make it feasible. Uh, the things that we've looked at are um, depression. Uh, we've done a cognitive test, but. Um, it's, a, it's quite a simplified one. Uh, and we've also looked at health-related quality of life. And we've got the patients with TTP, and then we've also got healthy volunteers as a comparison group. Um, patients experiencing significantly more depression with TTP compared to healthy volunteers um, is a recurrent theme. Uh, but within the health-related quality of life, it looks at both physical health and mental health. And it's interesting because for TTP, it seems to be impacting both. So it's not just low mood and depression, actually they're experiencing uh, a reduced quality of life from their physical health as as well as mental health. So, you know, I feel as though the the long-term problems that patients can face are quite broad and it is very varied from patient to patient, but um, those are the things that, we're seeing come out at the moment. But do we know if there's anything that predicts depression? So are there any patient characteristics that make someone more at risk? Is it something to do with delayed diagnosis or refractiveness or being old, young, male, female? Yeah, these these are the things that I definitely want to look at. Um, And it's, I'm hoping that we'll be able to get information along those lines once we get the full results of the study. Um, When I looked at this data from Liverpool. I mean, we had a lot of delays trying to get the study up and running through COVID, like um, as a lot of studies did. Um, The data I looked at from Liverpool was from around 70 participants. Um, We've got um, over a hundred now and still that's that's creeping up every day. And hopefully if we reach our target, for patients was 200 patients and I think 
I do think we can achieve that by the end. And I think that once we've got those numbers, we'll be able to look in a bit more detail about, you know, which, whether there are any particular risk factors, I guess. Those would be amazing numbers. There can't be that many people with TTP in the UK. It was, um, so it was kind of based on um, some of the UK TTP registry numbers. Yeah. Um, We have around 80 TTP patients at our site. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got, well, particularly since Heemstar involvement, like we've got quite a few other sites open and, um, due to open in Birmingham soon as well. Uh, and you guys cover quite a big area, so yeah. yeah, I'm 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 hoping that it's going to be achievable, despite it being a rare disease. So yeah, it would it would be an achievement if we get to that. I've got loads of questions, so I'll rattle through a few. Oh yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So th- this is this is clearly a high. I guess it's a hypothesis generating study in many ways. Is it? Is there any interventional study that you think you'd like to do? You know, to try and prevent some of these long term complications. Is there? Is there something that you would? If you had to, if you had to name one intervention to try and prevent something, what would it be, and what study would you do? Oh my gosh, there's there's so much that I want to do. Um, do you mean like an acute intervention, or you're you're talking about more of the long term problems? Yeah. Because um, I guess there's all the things acutely. You know, tr- you would you would imagine that that diagnosing and treating quicker would 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 sort of diminish those complications and that might be something you see in your retrospective study, i don't know or in your prospective study but um you know is there a trial that could be done where we give these patients to talopram after they recover for a year i mean because I, there, there are two things that i would be like super keen on being involved in so certainly i mean there are real there are really simple things so um psychology services have been built in now to the there are TTP centres, like new TTP centres. I think there's 10 that have been commissioned throughout the country, 10 new ones. So, um, and psychology has been built into that. And even something kind of as straightforward as offering a one-off kind of assessment with a psychologist kind of post-diagnosis, not, I don't think immediately, but like, you know, maybe after a few months once the patient has been discharged home mm. like whether whether you could offer them psychology support or like you said even you know would they benefit from a period of time on an antidepressant these are all these are all questions that we don't really know the answer to yeah um and because we we don't i guess because we don't know whether it would definitively help or not you could do a a study that was you offer it to one arm and the other arm just gets the best standard care which is what we're we're off at the moment so, yeah I think that there's there's a lot you could do the other um the other kind of aspect that I'm really interested in is that once the patients are recovered and in remission we regularly monitor their ADAMS 13 enzyme levels as a um a way of keeping an eye on them basically and some patients it goes right back up to normal levels and you know they just they're absolutely fine no issues but you have a group of patients where their adams 13 it picks up so it's not it's not completely 
missing anymore. They've got a little bit of adenosine enzyme, but it just kind of hovers in this, you know, just about okay, but below normal range kind of level. And I feel as though there is an intervention that perhaps we can be giving for this group of patients that's hovering somewhere in the gray area that's not not enough to receive any sort of treatment um but equally it's not normal either okay. i think that's an interesting group of patients anyone that's listened to me drone on in the last few months about you know empirical evidence and randomization yeah we have you have to randomize you have to pick you have um, to pick pick a group pick an intervention yeah. and just see if it helps yeah, um, yeah. And I guess this hasn't been done in TT. There's, there's been no, as I understand, trials in preventing cr- chronic complications of TT, t- TTP. Presumably the Kaplasismab um, study didn't do that follow-up either, I guess. Or did they? I don't know, because like, there's, there's kind of speculation in the, from the trials that, you know, perhaps it may, it, it would help with long-term complications. But like you said, you need the... Um, you need that data and you need that the difficulty is is that you actually need really long-term follow-up to to get that data don't you which is it's hard to do but it would it would be so informative if we were able to get that yeah um Um, one of my other random questions was i guess related to all this you know these people have been through a hugely traumatic experience mm. um do we see PTSD and are these patients six months later, a year later, just sitting there shit scared that this horrendous disease is going to relapse? There's like, there's certainly increased risks of PTSD. So there's, there's, um, there are studies showing that TTP patients have an increased risk of, of um, PTSD because it really, if you think about it, it, they've been through a kind of trauma, um, a lot, a lot of these patients, uh, because because they have to come over to specialist centres as well. And like I said earlier, they're just going about completely normal and healthy, probably going to work with a family, everything you know, ticking along. And then one day, they get TTP, and all of a sudden, they're going to an intensive care. They're being transferred, usually to a specialist hospital. So they're usually being transferred somewhere that could be an hour, two hours away from. Mm where they actually live so they're they're no longer in a familiar environment they're not even in their local hospital they're being transferred to a specialist center for a condition that they've probably never heard of I mean I I guess most of the you know if you if you spoke to most of the general public about a heart attack or a stroke they'd they'd kind of know what you were talking about like everyone has some idea of those common conditions but you know TTP you'd have everyone scratching their heads and we have patients telling us that you know they have professionals asking them what TTP is you know it's that it's that rare kind of thing um so there's all these aspects and they they have been through a kind of trauma so yeah PTSD is is definitely increased there's a lot of common patterns with what you see um so there's a, um, I'm trying to think what, how it's described now. There's like an acronym for it, but there's, that's basically a post ICU syndrome for, so for patients, patients that have been critically unwell in ICU. Um, 
and they have follow-up studies of the ICU patients and they, they've described a syndrome, like a post-ICU syndrome, and there are a lot of similarities between um, some of what the TTP patients experience um, in, yeah, I guess, having been through a similar traumatic event. Okay. Do you think there's a, the, the treatments we use are, are causing some of these problems? You know, the, the high-dose steroids, the plasma exchange, you know, plasma is not an indolent, benign thing. No. Um, potentially, you could see a, a role for capsaicizumab in decreasing plasma exchange and decreasing yeah. exposure to prednisolone and methylpred and things. Is, is that something yeah. you thought about? or? Is, is yeah, possible? I mean, so I think, yeah, plas- plasma exchange itself, like, definitely not without its complications i mean even the central line itself you know mm. it has all the usual like bleeding or you know misplacement of line or it, there's there's all sorts um of potential complications related to a plasma exchange um some of the so the real world capsizumab data that came out from Germany they actually described a number of patients that they treated with capsizumab without plasma exchange um so this is only this is something only being done within clinical trials obviously um but their patients it was a very small group but they had really good outcomes um with these patients and you know it if you could for at least a group of the TTP patients take away the burden of the plasma exchange, you know, you could potentially significantly reduce complications. Um, and of course, um, you know, it's not, it's not what we all want to think about first and foremost, but then, you know, you reduce costs as well. And, you know, working for the NHS, uh, every bit of money counts. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Once capitalism's not is off patent because it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not cheap is it yeah but i guess if you're using both or just one yeah then... yeah no this is very true very true <laughs> okay um so your your phd was it wasn't all clinical was it there was there was some basic science in there as well tell, tell me yeah. what, you did, what you did basic science wise to do with ttp yeah sure so um essentially so i'm i'm with a research group that has experience in uh something called neutrophil extracellular trap um and basically what this is is that it's part of the immune system and it's one of the function of neutrophils that is uh relatively newly described um what happens it's usually so the reason why they're good is that in response to infection um the neutrophils basically uh they kind of burst and they release a web of extracellular DNA that can trap it acts to trap bacteria um, and it's designed to try and stop infection spreading um, so they're supposed to be good um, however as research has kind of evolved they've been found to be present in a number of diseases like particularly autoimmune conditions um, where essentially what's happening is there isn't an infection or there isn't bacteria to get rid of but these nets um, uh, and webs of DNA are just forming and they can increase the risk of they're associated with blood clots as well Um, they almost act as a scaffold for um, blood clots and thrombosis to form so 
they can nets can be good however they can be harmful as well um and because of the association with of nets with blood clots and thrombosis um one of the lines of my research in my phd was to look at the role of um nets in ttp um so it's still ongoing work at the moment um but it kind of makes sense in terms of what we already know about nets um it kind of makes sense that they would have some sort of role there in an acute episode of ttp okay so you're telling me they definitely are involved then or am i am i allowed, not allowed to push you on this because it's not public? <laughs> i'm pretty certain they're involved okay yeah well it would make absolute sense wouldn't it yeah yeah so is there something you can do about it so there's there is um so if you look at uh it, so i guess what it comes down to is what do you think's driving the nets in the first place so you have to take another in terms of the sort of translational or basic science you have to take a step back even further to try and find out what factors are actually driving them to be present in the first place so there are there are papers like published um that describe anti-nets therapies. Um, so there was a paper published by our research group that has shown um, an anti-IL-8 monoclonal antibody is effective in sepsis. Um, so they've published on that. But there's also, um, if you look at different animal models and like other experiments, there are other ways of breaking down nets. Um, so you can infuse something called um, DNAs, which it, it breaks down uh, those nets uh, into smaller components, so they're not blocking um, vessels anymore. And so there's, there are different ways of targeting the nets, but the interesting thing is, is that in different diseases, it seems to be different factors that are driving the nets. So it's kind of individualized to a particular disease area as opposed to there's not necessarily a blanket treatment that would get rid of nets in all diseases yeah it's a I, bit I find, I find it absolutely amazing that neutrals have got they must they've got some dna coding something that makes them spew out dna it's amazing yeah. you know using using your code using your code as a tool to fight infection is just mind-blowing so I just, I mean, again, I'm like a nerdy hematologist, but like I'm looking at these down the microscope, like I just, like you actually see it happening. Like it's yeah. just, it, it's, um, it's mad really. And the other thing is, is that often when the neutrophils are producing these nets, they're like self-sacrificing. So yeah, yeah. it's like they're dying, but it's like doing a good thing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Or a bad <laughs> um, thing. Or a bad <laughs> thing, yeah, or a bad yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's really fascinating, and yeah, the I guess the translational science, and particularly when when you can see it being directly related to the patient care, it's yeah. it, it is quite amazing, really. So what's what's next? I know you're writing up your PhD and then back mm. to clinical, clinical, but presumably you know this is something you're very passionate about. You want to be carrying this on. You're going to be carrying on with Connect. Is there anything else in the pipeline? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to carry on as much, <laughs> doing as much as I can. But <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I've got a couple more years left on my 
specialist training but I definitely don't want to leave behind all the research that I've been doing so um, I'm trying as best possible to carry on but Connect is certainly carrying on and I can't see this being the end of my research in TTP to be honest. Well the TTP field would be lost without you. <laughs> <laughs> But on, in all nice. honesty, you know, you're doing something that you're doing something that's actually really meaningful to patients. There's so much research that doesn't make any difference to patients. You know, even even new novel therapies that use meaningless outcomes in trials. You know, um, they, you know, some of the sickle cell treatments that use hemoglobin thresholds as their primary outcomes. You know, they're just they're just meaningless. And you look yeah. look into the trial, and they make no no effect on quality of life. And they write 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 up the trial as if it's been a major success. So focusing on these things that really matter to patients, of course, survival in TTP is important, but you've yeah. got to survive with a good quality of life. And if you're depressed yeah. with headaches and all these things, it's, it's no good. And uh, there will be patients out there who wish they'd died. It's yeah, it, it's really, like I said before, it, it is a life changing diagnosis. And yeah. I just think that we've come so far with the treatment of TTP. Like we, we've really come a long way, but, in my mind there's so much further to go as well um I think it's like that with a lot of conditions but the the great thing is is that there is a lot of research happening there's a lot of keen and interested people and more importantly the patients are so on board with with everything they're they're like yeah they're a brilliant group of people and very very encouraging and they're always always up for always up for being involved which helps as well did you have patients formally involved with connect design yeah yeah really so good. they they actually they helped with kind of designing the study um coming up with the name we had patients <laughs> thinking of different names and they 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 sort of tested out our questionnaires for us and we did a pilot study at at the Royal, but yeah, they've, they've been involved really right from the outset. Um, and then every time there's a support group meeting, I give them a little update as well. <laughs> it's so really, it's really nice to see, you know, proper engagement with patients because there's so much lip service, you know, you'll get a company saying, oh, we need, we need this patient group to have some input in this yeah, study. They, like they don't care. They just the but actually what matters to us is, is driving, driving research for the, for the patients really is the next of the important ones. Uh, Bex, this has been so interesting and so fantastic. And, you know, I obviously asked those questions at the start about TTP, full well knowing the answers, but it's important. But then I've been <laughs> able to ask questions that I, I didn't think about before. And, and you've, you've really pushed me to stretch my brain and, and really think further. And the whole point of this podcast is to make people think further than the guidelines. You know, the, yeah, the British TTP yeah. guidelines, as far as I'm, I know, don't say anything about the long-term neurocognitive impact and, and survivor, survivorship and all these things, which are, which is so important. And, you know, becoming, becoming more important in our healthcare planning, I think, because as we yeah. become better at saving those lives acutely and in many diseases, you know, not just TTP, um, that survivorship, thing becomes hugely important you know you look at hodgkin lymphoma where patients are, are cured but their their survival is still much worse and you, you know that there is such such a long way to go and detoxifying our treatments and, and trying to prevent those long-term complications is is probably the fight for the 21st century isn't it yeah absolutely definitely this has been lovely and um thanks so much and i'll uh, i'll see you soon
don't just read the guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google, or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.